Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning, listeners. Welcome to Solidarity Breakfast on the 17th of October. Hope you are nice and warm under the bed. It's going to be a warm day today. Now, we've got a special program today. Um, one of the voices you heard in that introduction was Bill Della. A year ago today, Bill Della passed away, left us floundering. He's been the stalwart of this program for many years. And I think he brought um, some unique uh, political views to this program. He increased the depth and breadth of this program for listeners' information and enjoyment and pleasure. And he's sadly and greatly missed by everybody who's known him. And over the year, I have um, taken many phone calls where listeners have rung in and said that, "Ah, I enjoyed Bill Della. His programs are fantastic. I really miss him. In fact, there was a listener who proposed that we should have a memorial lecture um, that is something that needs organizing. So I guess it'll be someone, hopefully, even one of you can um, offer to organize it. It'll be a, a great thing in memory of Bill Della. He was um, one intelligent human being, committed to the working class, always a battler, always did the right thing by the workers. I worked with him in the State Public Services Federation for a few years and um, it was a great pleasure working with him as a team. He was a vice president of that um, particular trade union. And um, later on, he um, came to work here in 3CR. So the first half hour of this program will be dedicated to Bill's memories. And Lynn Beaton, one of his uh, longtime friends, will come at about 7.45 to um, talk about what Bill may have thought about things that have happened over the year. And in the program later on, we have the regulars, um, the Rank and File Radio, and the week that was, of course. And in the last half hour, we'll have um, Humphrey McQueen, and he will be talking about the stock markets today. It might be exciting to a dry (laughs) dry subject, but um, he's entertaining and very informative. So... I just want to begin the program with an interview that Bill did with uh, Billy Braggs. It's a short one, and just the first quarter of an hour, we'll just um, indulge ourselves in Bill's memory. 
talking to Billy Bragg on Radio 3CR, let me say that you do carry that banner of Woody Guthrie <laughs> extraordinarily well, um, well and it's, it's a great pleasure to have you uh, talking to Community Radio. Good to be here, really good to be here. In your commentary this morning you were talking about the situation at home and you've just come through a period where the Leveson Inquiry has exposed a, a serious number of criminal activities on the part of the press, yeah. liaisons with the police and so on. Do you think there's a bigger crime in there, however, uh, that says that it was the Murdoch Empire that owned every government since Thatcher? Well, there's that problem, and, and shamefully, our politicians at home are far too close to Murdoch. And hopefully the, the, the situation we have now with the Leveson Inquiry will, will expose that and stop it happening, hopefully. Hopefully, but regulation may not be the answer? I think the, the key word in the 21st century is accountability and people want accountability they want people in power to be held to account and that includes Rupert Murdoch and that also you said during your commentary to the meeting this morning that uh, the Occupy movement has got some lessons to learn in terms of organising and some... I think they can show us the way but I think they'll, they know that ultimately they're going to have to organise you know I mean that's the bottom line I think they know that I mean I don't think I think they do a great job and I think the challenge of articulating the compassionate ideals that are at the heart of socialism they're they're doing a good job of it, and I have a lot of respect for them. But they, you know, whatever, however you want to change the world, fundamentally you've got to organise. Only the audience can change the world, not the singer-songwriter, not the radio station, not the DJ, but the audience, these people here. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Love you to That was Bill with uh, Billy Braggs, the famous working-class singer, of course, from the UK, from the accent you could have picked it up. Um... Bill Della was a very warm human being. He's never said no to anyone who was in need. Um, had many, many friends. Trades Hall was overflowing when we had the memorial for him today last year. One of his um, long-term colleagues and friends and co-presenters of the Keep Love program uh, was uh, Chris Gaffney. And Chris Gaffney was interviewed um, soon after Bill passed away. And this is what he had to say. Uh, when was the first time you met Bill? Can you remember? I was trying to think about that. I knew Bill when he was in a group in the early the 70s and the 80s called the Heliites, who were still around today, they're today the Socialist Equity Party. and But they, were, they had many fine politics, but they were ultra-sectarian. And I think Bill was far too imaginative and talented a person to be contained in their ranks. They split in the 1980s, and Bill apparently was at a loose end after that, at least politically, and he became a public servant in that. And I began to meet him in the formation of a new group called uh, called the Communist League. And it was formed by ex-members of this Heliot group that had blown up and other people who'd been around the movement for a long time, like me. Um, Bill was a, an absolutely unique person I, I, in the sense that he was a wonderful speaker, a great organiser and motivator, and he could come into a room with people who didn't know who the hell he was, and by the end of it, he'd have them on his side. So he had that ability. He was a bit of a, a bit of a one-man band. He was a bit hard to wonder what the hell he was doing next, but he would always have some quite visionary idea for winning support, opening struggles, extending our ranks, and all the rest of it. So he... You know, he, he, it's a pity there wasn't a revolution because Bill would have played a major, major part in it, I think, as one with the overall vision, the ability to move people and 
The details he wasn't so hot on, but no revolutions ever made by one person. But Bill would have been. So that's the context in which I knew him. And we didn't always agree. In fact, we were in a thing called a, a people, um, Progressive Labour Party in the late 90s. And some people didn't like what Bill was doing, including me. But he, Bill was already on my program, our program, Keep Left, which is on 3CR on a Friday morning. And I thought, well, I've had this dispute with Bill. Now, we, what, what's the dispute about exactly? Can you well, think? the dispute was really about Bill being a one-man band. He oh, would okay. spend money that nobody had authorised, never for himself, but he wouldn't consult anybody. You know, he'd do things. He'd have a vision, a great idea in his head, and he'd go ahead and do it. He wouldn't take other people along with him. So he he needed, like most people do, you can't operate as an individual. You need a party. And it's just that the party wasn't strong enough, really, to exercise that... To con- be more assertive. To be more assertive. Which and, he would have probably been quite open to. Oh, yes, I'm sure he would have, but they were the times. So, yep. I mean, it was partly the fault of the times and the fact that, of course, we're a tiny group with little or no influence. Although we did stand for a couple of elections and we got our deposit back. So it wasn't all a waste of time. But <clears throat> at the time I thought, well, now, do I let this dispute in the PLP, was it known carry over to keep left and I thought of course not because Bill has got these talents for putting complex ideas simply on radio with a wonderful speaking voice which I've always been an actor I've always appreciated voice quality and Bill had a wonderful sonorous voice quite different to my own in fact in many ways better more sonorous more baritonal uh, but so he was a natural for radio and he could summarise positions and explain difficult particularly economic concepts brilliantly on radio, and um, so I thought, no, I'll shut up. We'll just get over this difficulty, and we did, and that was like 17 years ago. Uh, and, and the rest is history. The rest is history, and uh, no conflict with Bill. Occasionally, he would have a completely different attitude to people ringing up 3CR, whom he considered idiots, and my attitude was the way that he was idiots is you let them speak. Show everyone else they're idiots. You may know they're idiots, but you want everyone else to see they're idiots. So you let them speak, and then you come in and you do them. Bill couldn't be bothered. Oh, he's a fuckwit. Get him off. Get him off. Get him off, he'd say. And I'd say, no, 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 let him finish. Let him finish. He's sinking himself out of his own mouth. So that was about the only thing we ever disagreed with, was how to handle right-wing nutters. And uh, I always thought that, if there's one right-wing natter, there's another 50 who think the same thing and they're not going to say it. So better get the one person out, get them to voice their prejudices and show that they're rubbish. Oh, and also, you know, there are people who really don't know and uh, having someone actually expound an idea and then having it counted, it then becomes clear to them where they stand. Well, that's true. That's true. That's true. And... Uh you were very shocked on, for, I mean, as we all were. I was deeply shocked. I unfortunately had to do the show within half an hour of finding out that he had died. So it was, but I thought, I, you know, I've just got to. I've just got to go on. Um, I'm getting upset even thinking about it. Um, I know. Actually, when I did the show on Saturday last, I couldn't actually say it. At the beginning? <laughs> no, no, well, I couldn't. Well, I had to, 3CR offered to come on and announce his death, and it was just as well. I was in absolutely no condition to do that at all. And I was surprised in a way because Bill wasn't one who was particularly interested in personal relationships. He was never anything but kindness and generosity himself. But he had a mission. 
And thank God for that. Mm. He wasn't sentimental. No, he wasn't sentimental at no, all. No, we have to be sentimental for him. That's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. And, you know, he this, if he wasn't interested in something, I'd say, do you want to come to the theatre? Not interested in theatre. Okay. But the strengths outweighed the very few weaknesses. But, yes, he'll be severe, great loss, great loss. Yes, a great loss to 3CR and a great loss to the working class movement in Australia. What a man he was. And still sorely missed and sadly missed by everybody. I'm going to play a song that he liked and played a lot um, on this program. Um, and he played that even, um, as you heard, Annie McLaughlin, who's a co-presenter for this program, um, over the last year before he passed away. So here we go. This is um, Paul Kelly and Kev Comedy, I think, with... Um, oh, I've just lost the um, page. Here we go. So this is a song, one of um, Bill's favourites. Sit back and enjoy. Gather round people, I tell you a story, an eight year long story of power and pride. British Lord Vesta and Vincent Lingyari were opposite men on opposite sides. Vesti was fat, money and muscle, beef was his business, broad was his door. Vincent was lean, spoke very little, he had no bank balance, our dirt was his flow. From little things, big things grow, from little things, big things grow. The Ringy were working for nothing but rations. But once they had gathered the wealth of the land Daily the pressure got tighter and tighter The ringy decided they must make a stand They picked up their swags, started old walking At Waddy Creek, they sat themselves down Now it don't sound like much, but it sure got tongues talking Back at the homestead, then in the town. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Investing man said, I'll double your wages. Seven quid a week you have in your hand. Vincent said, uh-uh, we're not talking about wages. We're staying right here till we get our lane. Festy man rode, festy man thundered. You don't stand a chance of a cinder in snow. Vince said, if we fall, others are rising. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. 
Lives in Lingyari. You bought an airplane, landed in Sydney, big city of lights. And daily he went round softly, speaking his story to all kinds of men from all walks of life. Vincent sat down with them big politicians. This affair, they told him, it's a matter of state. Let us sort it out. While your people are hungry, Vincent said, no thanks, we know how to wait. From little things, big things grow. 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 You can sing to you, Mob, if you're in it. This is all about reconciliation, so get at it. We want to hear you. Vincent Lignari returned in an airplane back to his country once more to sit down and he told his people let the stars keep on turning we got friends in the south in the cities and towns eight years went by eight long years of waiting to one day a tall stranger appeared in the land and he came with lawyers came with great ceremony through Vincent's fingers, hold that handful of sand. Go! From little things, big things grow. 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 You can be Aboriginal Idol. You can be Aboriginal Idol if you want to. story of Vincent Lignari, but this is a story, something so much more. How power and privilege cannot move a people who know where they stand, when they stand in their Yes, that was one of uh, Bill's favorite songs, and he was a very strong supporter of the Aboriginal movement, and he had many friends in the community. Now, on the line now we have Lynn Beaton, who is was a um, long, oh, I can say he was, whatever, friend of um, Bill Della. Welcome um, to, to the program, Lynn. Thank you, Lali. Good, good morning, everybody. 
Yes, it's uh, it's been one year. Surprising, isn't it? Just, yes, it is surprising. It's been an action-packed year, hasn't it? Yes, completely. And he would have loved it. He would have just absolutely been like a pig in mud in this year. <laughs> he, he would have loved it because um, because it's been a year where actually there's been some quite good things happen as well, you know as well as um, some pretty terrible things. Uh, and I think yeah, Bill would have been reveling, and he would have been um, full of ideas about you know where to take things. <clears throat> Um, because that was one of his one of his great uh, skills was to you know see a situation um, not just a situation close to him necessarily but situations all around the world and 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 work out ways to intervene to bring those situations along a pathway that he thought you know humanity should go. Yes, and always find a way of connecting people together across the world. Exactly, yeah. exactly. To find a way to connect people and to find a way to to move the struggle forward in the way that he thought it should be brought forward. But it, And pretty much, I think, most of the time, what he thought was to bring bringing forward was actually to, about organising discussion and organising um, groups of people to get together and and bring their views together and, and in a belief that out of that would come, you know, Steps forward, mm. and I was just thinking um, while while the song was playing, you know, um, with the uh, advent of um, Jeremy Corbyn in in uh, the UK, he would have been absolutely delighted with that big jump in politics in the UK. No, he would have. I mean, one of the things that I miss most, I think, about Bill is that is not being able to talk to him when things like that happen. Yes. <laughs> quite often, you know, I, I would think what I thought about it and then Bill would think something different. Yes. Um, but he, his opinions were all, you know, I didn't necessarily always agree with him, but most often I would agree with him. Most often I would go, oh, yes, because when I say different, it wouldn't be that he would think something in opposition to what I was thinking. It would be more that he would extend the ideas and, you know, come at it from a slightly different angle and... Um, and bring his his massive that massive body of information that he carried yes. around in his brain. Very knowledgeable it's just, man. It's incredible head that had yes. so much <laughs> in it that used to pop out. He would just go, "My God, how do you know that?" <laughs> you know, I bought him a hat from uh, work, which is um, a hat with uh, enormous amount of uh, beautiful um, Aboriginal art on it. And I thought yeah. the large, I get the largest one, and that didn't fit him, so he had a big brain. <laughs> No, he did. He did have. A, he had a big head and a big brain. He did indeed. Yes. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. and I, I think you know his support for his support for a wide range of things went right back um, to his early days. I think when he um, you know left La Trobe University, it was like La Trobe, La Trobe University in the seventies, where so much was happening politically. And, but that wasn't enough for Bill. He wanted to get out into the world and find out how much of all this talk that was going on in the universities actually related to the real world. So off he goes to the to, to the Pilbara to work in mines, and um, he did that. You know, I think he did, it was it was wanting to extend his knowledge his knowledge past the walls of the university. He found them those are too frustrating. Yes, limited. Limiting, yes. Yeah, yeah. He couldn't cope with limitation. No. Nah. And, and he was a man who reveled in working class politics anyway. It was way beyond the universities. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. So, um, 
but you know, but his eyes were sort of opened at the university. Um, yes. So that was the beginning of his journey because his own background, whilst you know it was working class, it was very very conservative politically. So he had the experiences of being part of the working class and part of the you know not very well off working class. Um, he had those experiences as a child that he could base his knowledge on once it came. But in the end, um, he learned how to understand that life and how to understand the conditions of the working class. And, and interpret it in a political way. That, that's the, the beauty of, of Bill's uh, evolution in his thinking, that he could connect his experiences with the political situation around him and the objective conditions that governed his life. And I think that was the beauty of it, and he he has he had the intel, intellect to do that and move uh, and find organisations that could feed his hunger or thirst for knowledge to understand the world. Yes. It's such a dynamic yes. person. Yes, that's right. And I mean, you know, when you think about the the coming of the internet, which um, you know came in his lifetime, there could be nothing better for Bill than to actually have this endless body of information yes. where you could rake through. You know, I think he used to spend most of his life, I think he, he don't think he hardly ever slept. He just would spend his time raking through all the information that was on the internet. Whereas before that, he'd had to he'd had to rely on books, which, yes. you know, were fine, but um, books and newspapers. And, and in Australia, back in, you know, not that long ago, just a few decades ago, uh, you had to rely on... For, for, for left-wing information, you had to rely on, on you know, newspaper, left-wing newspapers that were imported into Australia, and or that you that you subscribed to yourself, and or that you went to left-wing bookshops to get hold of, and like it was quite a search just to get the information, wasn't it? When you think about it, that's right. It's a speed of information, and the amount of information we get now that that is almost overwhelming, actually. You could yeah. stay stuck the computer for hours and hours, which Bill didn't mind, because he was just starved for information and trying to, to connect the struggles all over the world with one another and trying to understand the dynamics of each one of them within its own boundaries and so on. And he, he reveled in it. He just loved it. And he'll bring it to the station and, and share it with people. You know, that was, that was just fantastic. I think that was the other, yeah, that was the other, you know, well, one of the many wonderful things is that Bill found 3CR. Yes. Um, or 3CR found Bill, whatever happened. But, you know, <laughs> Mutual really, relationship. <laughs> it, it, was a tr- it was absolutely the place that Bill needed to be. Um, or, or not needed to be, that, that makes it sound a bit therapeutic, but, but it was absolutely the place that where Bill's skills could be the most useful hmm. um, in that period that he worked at 3CR when... You know, political organising um, was limited because the because you know the union movement and the left have been so um, hampered, really, yeah, harnessed by 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 the ascent of neoliberalism. Hmm. And whilst that was beginning to break down, and I think that is beginning to break down, you know, still now is breaking down. It's um it's still a very difficult environment to work in. And so to be at, at some, somewhere which basically in terms of Melbourne is the hub of activity, isn't it? The yes. hub of, of, of community activity, polit- community and political activity. That's right. And um, so there's no better place for, uh, for someone who has the incredible political knowledge that Bill had um, and the context, being, being able to put all sorts of struggles into, into context with other struggles and um, 
so being able to make, I suppose, the analysis and also being able to get on with absolutely everybody and seeing the potent, the political potential that every single individual had. Yeah, that was unique with him. It was. Yeah, yeah he could pick anyone who has the slightest inclination to show interest in politics or question things even, and he will work with that person to build that curiosity and egg it on and say, look, go look for it, go research it, go, f- you know, find information here, there, everywhere. And he will also guide them. He brought in many new people into 3CR um, to have a taste of the program. And he even uh, invited me at one stage to come. This must have been five years ago yeah. uh, to join him on the program. And then he also was a, a key person in training at 3CR. He, he inducted many, many new people into the station. Yes, and what an induction that must have been. Yes, he, he was, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a complete political spill. I thought, oh, Bill, he's not changed since the 90s when yeah. I met him and I worked with him. And I'm thinking, <laughs> <laughs> it's just that, that sharpness, that complete commitment to politics and working class politics at that. He was an inspiration to all of us, I'd say. He was an amazing yeah. man. Hmm. Yeah, sadly I, I, missed, sadly missed, I'd say. Very sadly missed. And yeah. I think that um, that that being able to see the political potential in everyone and being encouraging, uh, um, you know, to individuals and, and helping them to find their own way. Um, that, I think that actually comes from the fact that Bill himself thought that his life was, um, you know, to be a political creature. And, and he, he was, his own personal life was always subservient to, to, to mm. his, um, his absolute commitment Yep, total to, commitment. To, to the struggle. Mm. So we've missed that man and we've come to the end of the half hour that I wanted to dedicate to Bill's memory this one year after his um, passing away and very, very sadly missed by everybody here. And thank you so yeah. much, Lynn. Okay, you're very welcome. It's lovely to talk to you as always, Riley. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, now we move on to rank and file. Um, by Marcus Harrington, of course, from the NUW. And if you've just joined us, this is 3CR, 855 on your AM dial and streaming live on the web. And uh, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast. And this is the Rank and File Radio program, or part of it anyway. And on this week's edition of Rank and File Radio today, we are joined by Christian Marks from the left-wing uh, news service, uh, the Facebook page, Don't Look at This Page. Uh, welcome to Rank and Fall Radio on Community Radio 3CR. Christian. It's good to be here. And as we said before, um, you run a page. Yeah, we, ru- we run a news and information page. Basically, we dedicate it to all things left-wing and progressive. Um, we sort of cover 50% local news and politics and the other 50% sort of world events and world news, anything that's happening around the world with activism or left-wing politics. So it's a bit of a 50-50 mix. Yeah, we can, I'd like to talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership and specifically how both major parties have sold us out. Uh, I mean, there was virtually no resistance from Labor either. And, I mean, this agreement is really going to sort of decimate future generations, um, particularly the investor-state dispute settlement clauses where... For instance, if a company is doing something wrong, like pumping toxic waste, you know, into our rivers, 
if uh, the government tries to stop that, even if it's in the best interest of the people, uh, the government can be sued for acting in the best interest of the people. I mean, the government essentially loses its sovereignty and its power over corporate interests. Um, it really is obscene. And uh, unfortunately, very little of the TPP has really got out in mainstream media. You, you know, you've, we've had a little bit... We've had a few snippets on ABC, but, I mean, the, the sort of mainstream commercial channels have virtually ignored it. And you've really only had uh, the Greens jumping up and up and down about it, and, of course, the socialist parties too. While the mainstream parties have sort of just sort of pushed it under the rug. Um, so that's a, that's a real worry, and, and unfortunately... Media in this country, as it is around the world, is manipulated by corporate interests. Um, and, you know, the news is censored and uh, there's a certain agenda, a neoliberal agenda, that's pushed out to the people. Um, Noam Chomsky called it manufacturing consent, whereby um, the media sort of, you know, it's got a kowtow to corporate interests and... I mean, the media is the mainstream media is owned by corporate corporations, and it sort of pushes their agenda. And I mean, we've got all sorts of distractions. I mean, we've got, you know, we've got anti-Islam now. I mean, yes, there is a there is a few there is a little bit of problem with some uh, extremists, but I mean, the media tries to conflate and whip up the hysteria, and uh, sort of lump all Muslims in as terrorists. And I mean and that and that's just the oldest trick in the book to try and get a to try and demonise a minority so that they can ram through their poisonous uh, ideological agenda. So unfortunately media is a big problem in getting the truth out. And I mean that's thank God for sort of community radio like you guys to sort of, you know, give Get the truth out there. Oh, that's the very reason 3CR was uh, created to, to give a voice to those denied a voice in the mainstream media. Yeah, and there's, unfortunately, there's there's not there's not too many uh, stations like 3CR around. Um, I think the future, though, also, I mean, you're getting so, you're getting a lot of grassroots activism now <clears throat> prolifer- proliferating on the net. And I think that's the future of news, really. I mean, you're just going to have, instead of having sort of corporate, large corporate um, blanket news, you're going to have lots of small independent news sources, you know, that sort of run on a shoestring that are going to get the truth out there. And and people are slowly waking up. But it's a David and Goliath battle. And uh, we just have to keep plugging away. As as we as we say on my page, truth is the mightiest hammer, and um, eventually the truth will be unveiled. You know, you can't keep covering up. I mean, you can fool some of the people all the time and all of the people some of the time, but eventually the truth's going to get out, and that's what we try to do on on our page. Unfortunately, the country is slid into neoliberalism now. I mean, I mean both parties have moved massively to the right. I mean, now you've got Labor is really 
a centre-right party and you've got Liberals who are sort of borderline fascist. You know, they're on their... They're about as extreme as you can get on economic policies. And, uh, I mean, this whole thing with Tony Abbott couldn't sell the policies, so they got rid of him and they put in... Malcolm Turnbull, who is infinitely more dangerous than Tony Abbott because he's articulate, and basically they've got they've sacked one used car salesman to get another used car salesman in to sell the same dodgy product. And uh, I mean, the ideology, irrespective of who the leader is in the Liberal Party, the ideology is the same. It's like far right economic neo neoliberalism, and Turnbull might be slightly. Uh, more socially progressive on a few issues, but he has the same economic agenda. So people need to be aware of that. Too many people read news, read the sort of mainstream newspapers and watch Channel 9 News. I mean, you know less than nothing if you're doing that. I mean, it's all spin. Spin and lies. Yeah, I mean, I mean the ideology of neoliberalism is to sort of demonise, set up scapegoats and... Uh, uh, dazzle people with bullshit, basically, and uh, sort of uh, distractions. It's all about distractions, you know. You know, they'll talk about, um, you know, the boat people and the invading hordes and what have you, and meanwhile they're ramming through free trade agreements in the middle of the night. And, um, I mean, they're very good at sort of manipulating the sort of uneducated and the, you know, and the... They're very good at uh, emotional manipulation with the uneducated to sort of, you know, get them. I mean, they don't they don't analyse and critique. They just sort of jump on emotional issues, hot button issues, and meanwhile, uh, you know, their governments are smashing unions. I mean, this I mean, the union has been weakened massively over the last thirty years. So they're smashing unions. They're bringing free trade agreements. There's they're attacking uh, penalty rates once again. I mean, Turnbull he's already put it on the table that penal they want to get they want to sort of get rid of Sunday penalty rates, and and who knows how far it's going to go. But I mean, this is the age-old tactic of the right: constant attack on workers' rights, the sick, the elderly, anyone who's vulnerable. They're straight onto. Meanwhile, they give carte blanche to their big business mates. And uh, it's got to stop. And the only way it can stop is if more and more people get out and sort of get on social media, such as Facebook and Twitter, and to get the news out there. And uh, we're slowly getting there. We're slowly moving in that direction and educating and waking others up. And how do listeners uh, find your page on Facebook? Okay. Um, our... Facebook address is www.facebook.com slash DLATP. And we also have a Twitter account, which is DLATP at DLATP Social Just. Um, so we've got two avenues there. And, um, yeah, we've been running for just under two years. And we're reaching... On a good week, we're reaching 150,000 people a week, and we've got nearly 8,000 uh, followers, regular followers. 
So, yeah, we, I mean, originally I just started it because I was so frustrated with the lies and disinformation coming out of mainstream media. And uh, I just decided I wanted to get the truth out there. And it just started from there, just from a passion. A passion and a, and a sort of just a white-hot anger at the lies and disinformation being propagated by mainstream media. Not just on local issues, but also, you know, on a wide range of issues around the world. I mean, Palestine and Israel, uh, the Middle East in general, uh, Monsanto. I mean, you never hear about half his stuff, and if you do, it's a very sort of sanitised version. So, yeah, we just keep trying to get the truth out there. And again, we see the government trying to introduce another free trade agreement, the China Free Trade Agreement, which will allow corporations to set up here and bring workers over from China. And we're not talking about it in a racist sense. If workers come here, they should be treated the same as the local workers. I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is just nothing but another corporate corporate theft to sort of, I mean, to make more... I mean, they're making obscene profits as it is. I mean, it's you could say it was treason, really. I mean, the Australian government is selling out our sovereignty and sort of bypassing our totally capable workforce so they can uh, pay people peanuts and exploit the poor Chinese. I mean, a worker is a worker. I mean, but if, if, if they're going to bring... I mean, they shouldn't be able to bring Chinese workers in here unless, you know, we've got a skill shortage here, but we've got people screaming out for jobs here. I mean, the skills are here. It's all about another corporate sort of you know, profit incentive, and it's it's just outrageous, and unfortunately, it's not getting the cover the coverage it deserves. Um, and at the same time, we see the Liberal government uh, again in another uh, royal commission into trade unions. Yet another royal commission. I mean, how many royal commissions do they oh, need? I mean, it's just an ideological witch hunt, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I mean, this is the third one. Is this the third one we've had? The last one back in 2002-2003, million political exercise which uh, found not one union member or union official guilty of any one offence, and yet they're trying yeah, again. I mean, it's disgraceful, really. I mean, it's... it's oh, yeah, it's, I mean, that money could go into infrastructure, health, education, you know. It could go into increasing unemployment benefits. It could, it could go into uh, raising pensions. All these things, and I mean, and just today I see they paid, I mean, the Liberal Party paid $55 million, uh, to settle four refugees, four refugees in Cambodia, $55 million. I mean, I mean, this is the kind of largesse and wastage that we see, you know, from the Liberals. I mean, it's all about placating the racist bogans. You know, I mean, $55 million, it's not an insignificant sum of money, is it? The only way it's going to stop is if there's, you know, there's huge outrage. I mean, it's got to come from the grassroots. There's got to be a lot of pressure from below. If people don't kick up a fuss, they just, they'll just keep on slowly going their merry way and um, getting away with this sort of stuff. And that's something the uh, the diggers at Eureka, the Eureka rebels, understood. They had to put their differences aside, their religious differences, their, their racial differences. They all put their put those differences aside to fight the common fight. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know the the age old saying, isn't it? You touch one, you touch all. You know, I mean, that's and the and that's what the unions all about. I mean, without the unions, I mean, we'd still be working in 
you know, shocking conditions. 80 hours a week, kids would be down in the mines and everything everything that Australia's ever had, decent, you know, holiday pay, sick pay, annual leave, maternity leave, what have you, it's all come from the unions. It hasn't come from the goodness of the employer's heart. Oh, that's right, ordinary men and women uh, taking up these struggles and fighting and winning better. Absolutely, absolutely. Better working life. I mean, there is no other institution in the world that's done more for, for humanity or the working class and, than the unions and its members, even the superannuation, something we all take for granted for today, fought and won by workers back in 1978, the Stormont and Packers, 18-week strike, and, uh, and that's the latest thing under attack from this Liberal government uh, that will wanting to take union representation off the industry uh, funds boards. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's disgusting. It's... Uh... It's, um, I mean, they just they seem to be getting away with it again by manipulating and manufacturing ma- manufacturing consent. I mean, if you read the Herald Sun, which I always like to know what the enemy's up to, and, um, you know, I read quite a few different publications, but it, occasionally I read the Herald Sun. I mean, basically, it's bash the unions, bash the elderly, bash the asylum seekers, and then repeat. You know what I mean? I mean, it's and people believe it. Unfortunately. A lot of people are fed on a diet of that sort of propaganda and they don't really get a balanced perspective of what's going on. And hopefully we're, we're, at the, we're starting to see a turning point again towards sort of left, left-wing ideas and union activism again. That was Marcus Harrington with his interview. If you have just tuned in, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and of course, streaming live on the web. Now, we've got a few announcements before we invite Uncle Kevin onto the program. One important one that's coming up, um, especially for people who are free on Monday, there is a rally to support teachers from Iran. In Iran today, teachers' wages have, been, have put them below the poverty line. And there have been, <clears throat> excuse me, nationwide rallies held for better wages in response to that. The Iranian government has been throwing union leaders in prison, and there is a trade hall motion that was passed recently, and that was that the Victorian Trade Hall Council condemns the suppression and imprisonment of Iranian trade unions, and calls on the Iranian government to release teachers and other workers imprisoned for their union activity. Further, the VTHC endorses nurses, teachers and other Iranian workers just, workers just demands for living wages and the right to organize. So 10 a.m. on the 19th of October on the steps of Parliament House. So if you're free, do come because they need all the solidarity they can get. It's one of the few countries where workers have been brutally suppressed. The next announcement is a film screening, No Free Steps to Heaven. It's a documentary by an Israeli journalist who visited the Kurdish YPG and PKK fighters in Iraqi and Syrian Kurdistan. The film interviews Kurdish women fighters. It's being held at the Resistance Center, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street, opposite RMIT. Ten dollars um, full and five dollars concession. Presented by the Socialist Alliance and Green Left Weekly. And for in, for more information, ring nine six three nine eight six double two. Now there's another popular gathering coming up. 
And that is Russell Brown's True, T-R-E-W, by the way, World Order. And the tour is a live version of his television series, The Truth. The show's name is a um, promento, portmento of true and news, of course. Um, and the premise, according to Brand, was to provide the true news so you don't have to invest any money in buying newspapers that change you for the privilege of keeping your conscience in prison in a tiny box of ignorance. 8 p.m., Rod Laver Arena, Batman Avenue, Richmond. So you just go to bookings on that one. You can Google that one easily enough. And there's also a uh, fundraiser for refugees. It's Run for Refugees, Asylum Seeker Resource Center. It has organized its yearly run. And the event is uh, back on as part of the Melbourne Marathon. So once again, Bookings is the organization to go to get get yourself booked in. Um, And let's go to another announcement. It's screening of a film, another one, Citizen 4. It's at the Australian Centre for Moving Image, Fed Square in the city. And it's at 9 p.m. on the 22nd of October. And the, the, sorry, go back, going back to the Salam Seeker Resource Centre, fun runs on the 18th of October. I forgot to mention the date on that one. So there's a few events on over the next few days. So I hope you get to go to some of them. Now, it's almost time for Uncle Kevin on Solidarity Breakfast and his satire. A week, Solidarity Bricky Team listener, where we learned how wrong we'd been, learned that people actually invest and profit through the Cayman Islands to maximise their tax liabilities, to ensure they don't avoid tax. Thus, we must, okay, reluctantly, but must acknowledge and admire the integrity and honesty of two senior and highly respected, caring business class party politicians. Obviously, big supremo Malcolm Tunnebull, and on another level, Minister for Pollution and Fossils Greg Haunt the Greedies will come back to him. But just when we thought the Caymans were named after a voracious reptile to attract voracious human reptiles, it turns out Lucy and Malcolm have stashed, stashed millions away there, uh, sorry, invested millions there, just to ensure they pay the appropriate tax on their not inconsiderable profits. They must feel under true Blawazi law they wouldn't pay enough, could heaven forbid, minimise their tax liabilities, which as we know they could, but it's important to note no one practises tax avoidance, tax dodging, they just minimise. And of course, such an honourable man as Ton of Bull wouldn't feed us a ton of bull, wouldn't obfuscate by telling us he pays his taxes in true blue Aussie on voracious reptile profits without clarifying just how much of the profits turn up as profits in true blue Aussie. Well, he doesn't have to, he's an honourable man. As the bard wrote, so are they all, all honourable men. Like Greg Haunt the Greenies, who, when the evil long-haired commie Greenie wouldn't work in an iron lots, abused the legal system to win on a point of law, and therein winning lay the abuse, Greg promised he would ensure the Adani fossils got their environmental approval to enhance the Gullalee Basin environment with a beautiful environmentally friendly coal behemoth. 
Environmentally aware, so aware, Greg determined the Adani bottom line was the only environment worthy of protection. The long-haired greenie lot never consider the economic consequences of their irresponsible nihilism. Adani, so-called because it stitched up the deal with Greg and Malcolm and the team. There's a black-throated fridge, cr fridge crap. They all have black throats once the coal gets going. <laughs> black-throated lynch the greenies. They all had a big laugh, and one minister said they were confident Adani the environment would do nothing to damage the environment. He, he obviously hasn't bothered to study its environmental record in India. Well, why would you? But Greg promised he wouldn't let environmental law get between a pile of coal and a pile of money. I have as much respect for the separation of powers as the next person, as long as the courts do the right thing. So we must acknowledge and admire the integrity and honesty of these two men, Mal and Greg, voracious reptiles and voracious boardrooms. The weather vane blowing with the wind award of the week must go to the US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo hopeful Hillary clinging on. We spoke last week how the signing of the US of Trans-Pacific Stop Evil China Not-So-Free Trade Agreement shows just how untrue blue Aussie those aforementioned long-haired lots are who abuse our environmental laws. Well, gold seems to have lost its glitter. It was the gold standard of trade agreements. Hillary gave us our instructions on it when she deigned to visit us three years ago, but now it's fool's gold. I am not in favour of what I have learned about it, Hillary campaigned. I don't believe it's going to meet the high bar I have set. Well, when we look at the man she married, we know she's always set the bar high. In this case, she wants to protect us, or protect U.S. Arb jobs, raise wages, protect national security. Obviously a matter of principle. Three years to think about it. The transmogrification from Secretary for U.S. Arb World State to Candidate. As one of those myriad of Washington so-called think tank people commented, it's a bit of a telltale. The wind is blowing in a certain direction and she's fairly adept at monitoring sediment and changing tack. Oh yes, nothing like firm principle in a political candidate. Hillary, your weather vane blowing with the wind award is on its way across the Pacific. Last week, we also gave our daily update, daily version of the USR bombing of that Syrian Médecins Sans Frontier hospital, uh, accidentally striking it laser-like four times in an hour. Uh, I'm looking for a scoop, I asked spokesperson General Chuck Bulldust IV. Uh, what will be tomorrow's version? God knows. But seriously, it is important we recognise the difference between good and evil in these matters, between good war as peace and bad war as evil as war. We've also asked our very own minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie bash up the workers to join us in this discussion with the US Arm Secretary for World State, John Caring for Train Killers, who represents good war, war as peace. Uh, John, Zion shooting non-country, non-people, Palestinian kids for throwing stones. That one's a no-brainer. Those Zion US of made bullets are protecting liberty, freedom and democracy. Lovers of. While those stones are evil terrorist missiles aimed at destroying democracy, destroying freedom. Uh, but the Zion train killers are in the kids' country. 
Those kids have no country. Uh, Julia, our independent position. Uh, I agree with John. Uh, independently. Okay. Turkey, Kurdish peace march, terrorist bomb, mass death and injury. This one's more difficult until we get more information or, or concoct more, uh, uh, sorry, intelligence can reveal the truth. If, if those bombs were placed by our very great friend, the Turkish government, then this was liberty, freedom and democracy in action just before a true democratic election against terrorists posing as a peace march. If this was the evil Kurds bombing themselves, this was evil terrorism personified. Although Oh, let me say, in northern Iraq, there are some good Kurds. Hard to believe they're the same people. If this was the evil Daesh death cult, as your former big supremo quite properly labelled them, this was even more evil. So we need more information on that one. Uh, Julie? I agree. We, we need more information before we can reach our independent conclusion. But we, too, have great respect for the Turkish government. Right, now this week in Yemen, Saudi airstrikes on a wedding party killed at least 15 guests and wounded another 25. Saudi is a great believer in liberty, freedom and democracy, a great friend of the U.S. of, a great friend of democracy. And the experience of the U.S. of, and therefore true Blawazi in Iraq and Afghanistan, has proved just what nests of terrorism, terrorist fronts, evil wedding parties are. Lascivious breeding grounds of future terrorists, not dissimilar to terrorist hospitals run by those evil medicine sand borders people. We applaud our Saudi allies for their brave campaign against terror. Uh, Julie, we have an independent view on this matter, which just happens to coincide with everything my very, very, very close friend John just said. We too are acutely aware of the terrorist threat posed by evil wedding parties. And we're standing up to China. We showed them by leaving them out of the not-so-free corporate trade agreement. Evil China poses a serious threat to world peace, a serious threat to the rights of our train killer vessels in the South China Sea, our train killer vessels maintaining peace in the international waters of evil China. And John, how many Chinese train killer vessels are maintaining war in the international waters of the US of? Clearly, any movement by evil China to put train killer vessels anywhere near the U.S. of would be seen by all lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy as a threat to world peace. An attack on international law would necessitate the most severe train killer response in order to preserve the peace the U.S. of stands for. Uh, Julie, our immediate support for the U.S. opposition, does this jeopardise our relations with China, most of which, um, from the government's point of view, are economic, and does it have anything to do with us in the first place anyway? Uh, we have an independent position on evil China, which I'll ask John to explain. OK, thanks, John. Thanks, Julie. Good of them to help us clear up what sometimes seems a bit confusing to we mere lay people.
Finally, it's so reassuring to have good people like John and Julie so devoted to peace, to making life safe for all of us, leaving us to ponder how evil these people must be who advocate and practice terror, who for no reason whatever feel slightly uncomfortable in our peaceful, safe society, although good to see we're trying to welcome them into the bosom of our multiculturalism, embrace them by bracing them, well, well sticking a tracking device on them after we release them from a, a bit of indefinite detention, keep them and their families and friends under constant surveillance, make them feel at home with daily headlines screaming, terror in our midst, all designed to make them realise their slight discomfort is misplaced. Don't suppose the protectors of our freedoms have thought that just maybe these measures might become less necessary, well, presuming they're necessary in the first place, if we didn't keep invading, murdering, destroying and slaughtering Islamic countries. Barack the Lionheart, Malcolm the Lionheart, good morning. Good morning, Uncle Kevin. That's right. Why are we invading all this country? Just to create refugees? It's a no-brainer. Anyway, now one quick announcement before, before we go on to our regular um, Humphrey McQueen. Um, it, there is a educational day and workshops being held on the 7th of November. And the topics covered are fighting for self-determination, the Tamil struggle and the West Papuan struggle, Australian imperialism and the Pacific the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Free Trade Agreement that we are being threatened big time with. And it's being held at the ETU office, Electoral Trades Union, 200 Arden Street, South Melbourne. It's being organised by the Socialist Alliance and it's titled Australia's Role in the Region, Racism, Colonialism and Imperialism. And if you want further information, please ring 96398622. Now, we are on to Uncle Humphrey McQueen, freelance journalist who is very informative to our program. Good morning, Humphrey. Good morning, good morning. And you've got the dry topic of stock markets today, which I hate. <laughs> well, it's a kind of dry topic. I mean, if it weren't so serious in the effects that they can have, it would indeed be as ludicrous as, um, as Bill Della. I mean, I'm just thinking in preparing this how much Bill would have enjoyed a discussion of the casino. Absolutely. The stock market. It was one of his his great themes, and rightly so. He loved it. Because we saw this headline a couple of weeks ago stock market crash, 56 billion wiped off. I know. How does that happen? Well, and where did it go? Did, you know, I was wondering, I just thought I might ask you, did any Nigerian prince send you an email saying, I want to send you a billion dollars out of this? I don't think so. No, I don't know. Perhaps one of the listeners got all the 56 million. Maybe. It would be nice to hear from them. So, but where did it come from in the first place? That's the thing that well, confuses me. Well, where did me. it come from? Was it ever there? Yeah, These are right. the questions we're going to try and say something about. Now, throughout the year, we've been looking and talk at um, what is the nature of capital within a capitalist system. Last month, we looked at the Chinese crack-up as a case study of that. And today, I thought I'd follow through on one of the consequences of what's been going on in China with the collapse of the commodity prices around the world and that then precipitating this 
$56 billion wipeout in Australia alone. Mm. So it's only $56 billion here. Imagine how many hundreds of billions were there one day and then an hour later they weren't there. Um, so that's what we're going to try and, and see if we can make some sense of. So um, I want to look at, at that in relation to the... Um, to the big mining companies, and uh, Glencore is one of them that certainly comes to mind. With interesting that they'd already lost a lot of money, well, a lot of share value, as it's called, and then the CEO said, I can't read China. <laughs> and a moment later, he made this perfectly honest statement. They lost even more share value. <laughs> if he told a lie and said, oh, I know everything that's going on in China, I can predict what's going to happen next, this wouldn't have happened. That's so true. you tell the truth on the stock market because nobody can really read exactly what's going to happen in China. And to say so mm. is to cut into Glencore's share value even further, which gives us some idea of the fantasy that we are trying to make sense of. But it's a fantasy that also has a big impact on people's daily lives. So what I thought we'd do would to look at that and then to make a comparison with what's happened to Volkswagen share mm. price because they're quite distinct as to why the Volkswagen share price has gone down and more importantly, what it actually means compared to this $56 billion which disappeared off the Australian stock market in a couple of hours one morning. Mm -hmm. So, now, we need to ask ourselves also, where did the money come from in yes, the first place? exactly. Um, now, we always need to remind ourselves, as I hope we've been doing every time we've talked about this this year, is that 99% of it comes from the surplus value produced by wage slaves. Yep. If there's, ever, if there's any real value there, we made it. It wasn't the capitalist, it wasn't the manager, it wasn't these people who get their billion-dollar salaries. It was the listeners to 3CR. Yes, it's the, the wage slaves of the world That's who right. make the capital that is there to invest. Mm -hmm. And in talking about capital, one must never, ever forget that starting point. Mm. Now, that means that a lot of the money, that, corp that money capital that corporations use, they actually generate internally. They don't get off the stock market and they don't borrow from a bank or a superannuation fund or an insurance company. The big ones generate a lot of it um, inside their own operations by exploiting their own um, workforce. Much of the rest of it, as I said, they get from the banks or the insurance funds or the superannuation funds, from big institutions who move their money around, not only to the Cayman Islands, but from one big investment opportunity, as they see it, onto the others. Very little of the new investment money is actually raised on the stock market. We're told, we're given this lie, that the stock market is there to raise capital, venture capital, so that the system can progress and all will be well. Well, very little money comes from there. What goes on on the stock market is it's a casino. Mm. And the traders treat the share prices there as gambling chips. Uh, that's what's really going on most of the time on the stock market. Warren Buffett, who has made more money out of being on top of this than probably anybody else in human history, 
describes the share market, he said, it's a voting machine, it's not a weighing machine. It's a sentiment machine where people decide, ah, it's going to move this way and I can get in and buy and get out again. Now, that's not what Warren Buffett's done. Warren Buffett has always gone in for the long term and that's why, as he said, he'd never owned what used to be called a ticker tape machine. He's not interested in the half-hour movement in the share price. He's interested in the long term, year after year after year. But the but the share market, the casino part of it, they're not interested in that at all. It's there for those short term. The longest term, they think, is the quarterly report of every three months. So that's where the money comes from. Then we need to start with a very simple model as to what might happen. So I'm going to talk in terms of 100 uh, units. Now, we could talk that these might be 100 million, 100 uh, billion, probably a bit big for most investments, yes. but we'll just talk about them as $100 here or there. So you've got a company that's already listed on the stock exchange. It then issues some more shares at $100 each. <clears throat> now, your, <clears throat> your industry super fund buys some of these for $100. Six months later, for reasons that we needn't go into, we'll say the share price has gone up to $110. Now, we do, however, need to be clear about what has happened. No more money capital has gone into the firm itself. What has happened is that somebody has bought one share and prepared on expectations of how much profit they'll get out of it, they're prepared to pay a premium of $10 over the original. If they'd bought six months earlier, they could have got it for $100, but they've now decided it's going to earn them more or the price will go up and they'll be able to sell and take out a profit of that. For whatever reason, they're paying 110 But the original company, the one that makes something or sells something or engages in a service or whatever it might be, They've got no more money out of it. What, how, what has happened, however, is that this, you know, I'm now exaggerating, of only one sale of one share, because you can't do that on the stock market. You've got to buy in multiples of thousands. Yeah, of course, they just yes. won't let you trade at that small level. But we'll just say, one of these shares is now gone on the, on the price from 100 to 110. What that means is, in the share market, is that all the shares in that company have now been revalued at 110. Hmm. And that means that, say, they had 1 million shares at the first place. Well, we've got to make it simpler. 100, 100 million uh, was, the, was the share value of the company. It's now gone up to 110 million. Hmm. 10 more million have come on the basis of one or a hand tiny parcel of shares being sold for more than the original price. So when we're thinking about what's happening on the stock market, how suddenly it's worth this much or, um, or it falls by an equal amount, or you know, those ups and downs, it's not because $10 million have gone in. It's just that the latest trade on a share in that company has gone up or down, and they then revalue everything else on the basis that, well, if you now tried to buy one, you'd have to pay this. But, of course, if you think about it for a moment, 
if they've gone to 110 and everybody says, oh, goody, I'll make $10, I'll get out now, and everybody tried to sell at once, well, they'd be back to 100 in no time. Yes, they? that's right. <laughs> so they're not actually worth 110. It's only if you can get out first. Yes. Then they might be worth 110. It's like gambling, isn't it, really? Well, of course, that's exactly what it is. It, it, that is exactly what it is. It is an elaborate casino in these aspects of what the market is. And I might add, we won't go into this now, but they do the same with uh, futures. Market. Up or down. And so... Um, these are the kinds of things that they are getting up to all the time. Uh, and that's why it's possible to think in terms of uh, this loss of $56 billion. Now, um, what has happened, though, is that when this firm has issued the shares at 100 and people buy them at that price, then six months later, we'll say, people buy shares at 110 the firm now has two categories of shareholders. Those who got in at 100, at par, as they say, or those who are paid more. Hmm. So that when the share price goes down, it affects those two categories of shareholders in a different way. Of course. The ones who paid 100, if it goes back to 100, they haven't lost any of the money that they put out. We'll just have a little diversion and say what they've lost, of course, is the opportunity to have invested their money in a company in which the share value hasn't gone down. Mm. So they missed out on that. So they they lost there. But in terms of the money they put out, they've still got the hundred mm-hmm. that they put out in the first place. However, if you bought in at a hundred and ten, and it drops to a hundred, then you've lost ten. That's right. So that category of shareholder does lose money that they have put out. So when we talk about the $56 billion, some of it will be a real loss to some of the investors. Now, we, we can't be sure how much. I mean, you'd really have to do very elaborate analyses of people buying and selling on the stock market. Of course. But in, in broad terms, you've got the people who buy at par, and when it falls back to par... All they've lost is the opportunity to have invested somewhere else, to put their money on red rather than on the... Uh, Blue uh, chip or whatever. Black part. You know, to, <laughs> yeah. inst- instead of betting oh, yes. on 21, they should have bet on 18 or something. Yeah. You know? So they've lost that opportunity. But the people who have bought at 110 or you know, 120, they will have lost that amount. Now, they can hang on to their share, of course, and hope that it will go up again. Uh, so we're thinking in these two terms. It's not just that the $56 billion was entirely uh, a fictitious amount of money. Uh, some of it, for some people, is real. And the effect of that in the real economy can be quite serious. Uh, if, if enough people are in that situation and they sense that they've lost that amount, then that alters their spending patterns, their investment patterns, and that's one of the things that's happened in uh, the Chinese share market, where you had this enormous investment about a year ago, the value, you know, the share price shot up and then it collapsed again. Now, the effect of this throughout the Chinese economy then ripples on to the rest of 
the uh, economies, including Australia. Mm. Uh, so it can have that real effect um, operating through there. Now, um, but most of those millions, those billions, have never really existed. That's right. Um, and so we need to be, you know, keep stressing this kind of, you know, simple point because when the numbers get as big as 56 billion, many people just think that's too big a number. I can't follow that. That's right. You know, <laughs> you know, and I just, you know, how many noughts does involve in that? <laughs> you know, they think, oh, God, I can't do that. You know, poor old Barnaby Joyce couldn't tell, you know, billions <laughs> of a trillion. That's right. um, you know, and I can sympathise with him. You know, it's a lot of noughts, you know, yes. and he's only an accountant. You know, you can't expect everything. Um, so, you know, people stop thinking about it in these terms. But we do need to understand what's going uh, uh, on there. Now, um, what it meant, uh, I keep saying, we're going to switch across to Glencore in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, for, the, the, for the Australian market to fall by 56 billion in one hour, uh, without many people actually losing money, is probably what happened. Some people will have actually lost. Yep. Uh, there's always going to be some of the losers, they were the ones who got in at, at, a, at a higher price. Now, Glencore is in a different situation again. Glencore is a firm that operates real mines. It digs things out of the ground and makes some of its money out of that. But it's also a commodities trader. It buys resources from other firms to sell on to somebody else. So it's got a, a more complicated uh, situation. Its share value will be dependent in terms of what people think it can still get out of the mines that it owns. Mm. But it's paid for the commodities at a higher price. So it's like an investor who's bought a share above par. Right. Instead of buying at 100 it's it bought it at 110. Mm. So it bought iron ore, we will say, when the when the when the iron ore price was a hundred dollars a ton. Now, just you know, for sake of argument, iron ore price is down to fifty dollars a ton. Yeah. So while it's paid a hundred dollars a ton, it can't get that money. It can't get it back. Yep. There's no one is going to say to you, "Well, I'm sorry, it cost you this." but I can get it for 50 uh, on the other side of the street. I'm very sorry for you. Um, Marx gives the example of somebody who turns up to a uh, fruit market with, um, with a load of strawberries and says, these cost me. I have to pay my workers and for fertiliser and land, all these things. These cost me $5 to make a kilo of strawberries. Unfortunately, my truck broke down and all the strawberries have gone bad, um, but I'd still like $5. Well, the market would <laughs> yes. say, I'm sorry, but they aren't worth anything. Yes. It doesn't matter how much you put into them, you can't get that out anymore. Mm. And while Marx is based on the labour theory of value, mm -hmm. that the value of a commodity is 
largely determined by the amount of the socially necessary labour power that goes into its uh, creation. Its price is going to be determined on what else is on the market at the time. So that Glencore and, you know, and many of the other big traders, of course, have been stuck with commodities that are now worth half of what they were before. So Glencore is engaged in a fire sale. It's trying to get rid of its commodities at any price that it can to get some cash flow. It's trying to sell off many of its um, actual operations at any price to get some cash flow. And it's trying to raise two or three hundred billion, uh, sorry, million. hundred million to keep itself um, Afloat, really. operational. Mm. The problem it then faces, of course, is will a bank lend it any money? And yes. at, what, at what interest rate? Because it is a big risk at the moment. So what I'm saying now about a firm like Glencore, it's in a different position to a share trader. Um, it also, the share trader is only commodity, if you like, of shares. With Glencore, it has real commodities that have lost in the market half the price that it cost to produce them uh, 12 months ago, or that they bought them in from somebody else at a higher price in the expectation that they would either get that amount back or that the price might actually increase and they'd be able to make uh, a real killing on yes. having been able to, uh, to buy in this way. So that's a real company operating in this uh, in this kind of way. Now, the other real company, of course, which is very different again, is Volkswagen. Mm. Um, now, Volkswagen share price had a very strange experience earlier this year. Um, at the beginning of the year, it stood at, we'll say, 100 units. In March, it had shot up to 140 by September, of course, we now know it was down to 60. Now, we know why it plunged to 60, because of the scandal of over the, the lies that they've been telling about their the emissions. Uh, emissions. Yep. But it had gone up to 140 from 100, uh, presumably on the basis that the company value, because it was making these mute cars, that everything was wonderful, they were going to be able to sell more of them. People thought, oh, we're going to get more profit out of this. Let's buy a share, a $100 share for 140 and we'll make a lot of money out of it. So that Volkswagen would have had a lot of shareholders going back decades, yep. big corporations with shares in it, that they paid uh, 100 units for. From... January to March, they would have also some shareholders who paid 140. Now that it's gone down to 60, Ooh. the 140 people have lost 80 That's right. of those units, but the previous ones have lost only half that amount. Mm. So when we look at a firm like Volkswagen, which has got itself into this kind of trouble, this is not a stock market problem. This is not um, 
uh, you know, that something, you know, that the rest of the stock market's collapsed and everyone's been selling off to try and get out. In, in the case of Volkswagen, we're looking at what has happened to the value of the commodity that they have, i.e. Yes. all of their uh, vehicles. Yes, as, um, as opposed to shares. Yeah. Mm. So, now, what they've got, of course, is they've got a big plant around the world, you know, that makes these things. Of course, yeah. And then they've got stockyards of cars that have already been made. Then they've got, we now know, all the liabilities that they'll get for having to repair them, the, the charges, the, you know, the fines, all of these things that will fall on the company in the next few years. The question might, you might ask is, can it survive this? You know, um, will the German government have to bail them out? Um, because these are big charges against them. But even leaving those things aside, the value of the cars that are out there in the sales yard are not what they were three months ago. Mm, that's right. They've dropped mm. as well. Because people are going to say, well, I don't want to buy a Volkswagen. I can't trust them. Mm. And, regardless, and regardless uh, when they were made too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so people will go and say, well, I might buy something else, or, well, I will buy one, but I want you to take off $10,000. And the people who have been landed with them around the world, the VW uh, uh, sales outlets, they might say, God, I'm not selling. I need cash flow, so I will sell at any price I can get. I mean, if someone will give me 30000 in cash for a $40,000 vehicle, I'll take it, because I have to. Yeah. Now, this means that the value of the company is being pulled down in real terms, mm. not in fictitious terms. Yes, the share market's collapsed from 140, God knows how it got to there, to 60. But the real problem for Volkswagen is not just that, the real problem is that the the value of its uh, production plants, of the stock that it has, of its reputation, yes. all of these things mm. have taken a big hit as well. That's right. And that distinguishes what's happened to Volkswagen from what's happened to the rest yeah. of the share market. Yeah. Uh, um, Humphrey, we've got about three minutes I left. I know we've got to stop there. Now, I <laughs> hope in, in making these distinctions we've been able to... To, to clarify this very peculiar thing that is the way in which capital, money capital, moves around the capitalist system. Mm. Great, Lali. We'll talk Thank again you. in a Thank month. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Humphrey. Bye. Well, I hope. Good. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you, Humphrey. That is a contribution to help clarify the market a bit more. So hopefully you've enjoyed the program. Uh, thanks to Lynn Beaton, who joined us on, um, I guess, uh, in the memories of Bill Della, who passed away a year ago today. And thank you to Marcus Harrington, who regularly does the rank and file radio part of this program. And of course, um, the week that was by Kevin Healy, our satirist, I cannot say that word, um, Always um, the lighter part of our program. And, of course, Humphrey McQueen, who has been a steady and ongoing contributor as a um, 
freelance journalist and a Marxist. And we shall go out with a song, but stay tuned for uh, Asia Pacific Currents. I'm not sure who's presenting today, but they should be on very soon. So here we go. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.